one second. How's that? That's good. Uh, so it's great to see everyone here, even if I don't know you and some of you uh, who I do. I'd love to, uh, if you want to have a chat afterwards, I'd love to talk with you as well. Um, so we're going to be tackling, I think, the, the topic of... Um, the topic of depression today. And so just beginning off, if there is a trigger warning, I'm going to be talking about my own experience with mental health, uh, which does uh, include suicidal intention. And so I think if at any time you want to take a breather and step outside or step to the back, uh, please do so. Uh, there's no... There's no uh, no one's going to judge you for that. And there are people, I'm sure there are people here that you can talk uh, with uh, and um, or the friend that you've brought you here today. And I've also included, I think, on my slides, there we go, on the bottom is uh, the numbers to Lifeline, which is a crisis hotline, or Beyond Blue, which is uh, a hotline as well for counselling. Um, so I think compared to other people, uh, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s, uh, let's just keep it at mid-20s for now, um, <laughs> I can pass off as a mid-20s, um, I haven't suffered as much as others. One of the most profound uh, podcasts that I've listened to is Better Off Dead by Andrew Denton, and I really would recommend you to listen to it. Uh, it's about people, Andrew Denton goes on and interviews and looks at people considering assisted euthanasia because of the immense suffering that they go through. Um, now, I don't agree with euthanasia, but as I listen to... Oh, it's gone. No, it's back. As I listen to... Uh, this podcast, uh, it made me understand uh, their desire to end their life because of the overwhelming and enduring suffering that they went through. At the moment, I'm writing a paper for the Association of Jewish Studies on the Holocaust. And as I was doing my research, I see people who have gone through so much more suffering than I have. And I'm sure there are people here who've also suffered as well. There's a beautiful poem written on the walls of Auschwitz dorm that I love, that I want to read to you in German. Immer freilich sind für die Gnade und das Wunder unterwegs, nur sind schwer so sehend und so begriffen, begreifen, für die, die im Dunkel wandern. In English, I translate, uh, there is always certainly grace and wonder on the path, only they are hard to see and hard to embrace for those who in darkness are compelled to wander. It's one of my favourite poems. For me, the path of darkness uh, started uh, at the end of high school when I was kind of increasingly falling into periods of um, sadness, mainly to do with friendships, and then which really escalated at university. At uni, 
I fell out with one of my best friends and that really plummeted me uh, near the edge. I was uh, in denial, I was in grief, uh, I couldn't sleep and I spent a month like a walking zombie. Uh, and then it really got to a point where I went to the top of the building in, at UCID and I thought uh, I would jump. And then I looked down and I thought to myself, that's not tall enough. <laughs> All I'll get is probably uh, broken legs and a broken back and I'll still keep living. And then I wrote this a couple of years later. I'm sorry we didn't have the chance to say goodbye. It was my fault. I ran away and ripped the fabric of our friendship, leaving it strewn across our lives. You tried to sew it back several times, but I just pushed you away. I threw it away like trash because I was too scared to stand up and stare you in the face and apologize. I treated it as cheap and thought I could get a decent refund, but I was wrong. I miss the phone calls, the car chats about nothing, the frisbee throwing, the dog walks. I miss it all, but I feel like I didn't lose a friend. I lost a part of myself. Who I was around you is gone. Sometimes when I blink back the residues of sadness, I glimpse some good that came from it. I gather the remaining sh broken shards of our time together with bleeding hands and see my reflection in them, and it stares back at me, a broken, fallen person. I've come to know that deeper, and I carry those scars with me wherever I go, to remind myself never to do it again. I still think about you. I do. It got better after a couple of years, uh, uh, but it was still spinning kind of in and out, uh, but I couldn't face the fact that I needed uh, medical help. So when I finished university, I decided to go to Bible college uh, to study theology and God and religion and faith. I wanted to learn more and grow and be able to share about my religion with others. And it was in my first semester there that my life really just blew apart. I nearly failed some of my subjects I'd had increasing doubts uh, about myself as, um, as these depressive goggles were put on more and more. That's a, a scene from um, Sean Tan's The Red Tree. On the outside, I was fine. I was at church, I had friends, but on the inside, it was like a dark hole. And I wrote this, this poem. It is there around the corner of your favourite turn of the road with its stare glare daring you to try to turn another way. It is there in the look of your friend, a book written by yourself. Was it hatred, care? I'm pretty sure you're a freak. But each interpretation clouded by those damn depression-tinted glasses. It is there and you say it's okay. Of course it is. But what if I'm not? What if cheerfulness is more than outward smiles? It is there when you close your eyes. Open them, I dare you. Open those damn eyes. Because it's imprinted, burnt 
away your retina until all you see are myopic shadows of doubt. It is there when it stopped raining, when the clouds have gone and cried their tears, when the party's still going and the laughter's loud, like sirens alluring to certain disappointment. It is there. It is there. It is there. Is he? I felt really ironic that um, I was studying about God, religion, the Bible, yet I was so distant to him. I felt distant to him. In the space where you think you'll be close to God, right, at, at, at a Bible college where you're studying about religion, there were doubts. I didn't doubt that God was good. I doubted that God was good to me. That he'd kind of thrown me in a muddy pit with wet sides that I couldn't claw out. Another person wrote this. I'm written off as a lost cause. One more statistic, a hopeless case. Abandoned as already dead. One more body in a stack of corpses. And not so much as a gravestone. I'm a black hole in oblivion. God, you have dropped me into a bottomless pit, sunk me in a pitch black abyss. At the end of my first year of study, uh, I was continually spiralling down into depressive episodes every day, and it really made a strain on one of my friendships, especially one of my best friends. And I wrote, it's, it's, all right, said Dylan Thomas, or is it Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan, don't think twice, it's all right. It's all right, two words, two stark, two echoes in the dark. It's all right. What's all right? Tell me it's all right when you have climbed the mountain strapped in rollerblades. Is it all right? Is it over? Is there a chance in this field of clover? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it all right? Is it over? When will this change? (coughs) I said, I am scared, and you told me, it's okay to be scared. Don't disappear. It's okay. It's all right. I'll be around. It got to a point where I was severely draining out my friend, and he said, Sam, you really need to see a doctor. Um... You're delusional, you're, you're misinterpreting things, you're placing motives on people's actions, you're having OCD thoughts uh, that everyone is out to get you. And I reflected on that and wrote, the eyes you smile with your mouse, mouth, you nod with your chin, but your eyes, they tell me what you're thinking within. You pretend I'm not there, or just usher a glance in my direction. You don't think I notice the eyes, the look in your eyes, the eyes of pity, the eyes that just tell me you don't give an F. And it was in that moment that I had to confront the real reality of the world, that I, a successful human being, was limited and broken. I couldn't rely on my strength. That even though I had an 
good track record. I had a good childhood. I went to a selective school, you know. I got a decent ATAR. I had a university degree. I was doing a postgraduate uh, work. I was loved by friends and family. That all these things didn't make me any less limited and broken. And the first step is asking for help. The first step of the 12 Steps program of Alcoholic Anonymous, I am not an alcoholic, uh, is acknowledging that there is a problem. I've realised in the last 20 years of the rise of the anti-hero in our movies and our entertainment, right? Uh, limitedness is now uh, cool. Move aside godlike Superman. Here comes the Dark Knight who's flawed and with broken ribs. Move aside the vanilla Fantastic Four. Here's um, Umbrella Academy with compromised ethics. Move aside narratives that protect the main character. In the real world, anybody can get killed off. Even insert Marvel character from Infinity War dies. I say to my friend, I love going to Hattrick in Macquarie Park, which is a cafe, because it's hipster um, uh, with a bar and you can get gin and tonic at any hour. And he said to me, isn't it too early to have a gin and tonic at 10.30 in the morning? And I say to him, well, it's always gin and tonic time somewhere in the world. Of the 7.7 billion people in the world, somewhere it is suffering o'clock. Somewhere there is a cry for help and somewhere there is no response. Shane Koskin, Canadian spoken word poet, writes, puts it this way. If a kid breaks in a school and no one around chooses to hear, do they make a sound? Are they just the background noise of a soundtrack stuck on repeat? And so, as, as all these things came to a moment at the end of that year, I needed help. And I couldn't get help until I acknowledged it and I asked for it. The second step of the 12-step program is looking towards another for help. And that's the strange reality, isn't it? You can't help someone unless they themselves want to be helped. And you can't be helped unless you take off your pride. And thankfully, someone close chose to hear. A couple of a month ago, I visited one of my best friends, uh, Sam, from New Zealand, uh, who helped me through one of this, these periods. His mother has a form of ALS, motor neurons disease, and she's here confined to a wheelchair. Uh, she speaks through an iPad. She can't sing or play the piano or speak anymore. Her muscles continue to deteriorate. When Sam found out that his mother would have ALS at the age of 15, he cried himself to sleep. But both him and his mum and his parents and his brothers are the most faithful people I know the most joyous in suffering, the most loyal and the most caring. 
I love Danelda, his mum, because in suffering she still praises God. She laughs alongside with the family, of whom I'm considered the fifth son, uh, and we constantly make irreverent jokes about her and her flatulence. <laughs> uh, it's as if suffering has taught this family to realise that every moment is a gift to be received and that to live is not to gain but to enjoy. That the ordinary is beautiful and the broken are also beautiful. It's as if this suffering through some mysterious means transformed Sam as someone who has a heart as big as his hands. After a major conflict with him, which left me on my birthday crying on the floor, uh, listening to the same song over and over and over again, um, the next day Sam drove me to see the doctor and sat with me in the waiting room. I asked him, why do you stay after I said all these things to you? And he said to me, just because you said those things doesn't mean I stopped loving you. It's kind of, if you're a Doctor Who fan, what the 12th Doctor said to Clara. Did you think I care for you so little that betraying me would make a difference? It's kind of mirrored in that story that Jesus told of the son who breaks relationship with his father, takes half the money, and then returns broken. The father, instead of reprimanding him, says, runs to him, filled with compassion, and embraces him. And so all this time I'd been asking, where is God in the pain and the suffering, and why is he silent? When in reality, God is present in the arms and embraces of those around me. That Jesus is there in his people. Uh, From the day in 2014 was a journey of mental health, but now compelled to wander in the darkness, not alone anymore. It was a journey of medication changes, further diagnoses, up and down, bipolar, until I sit here this afternoon, this morning, this afternoon, still broken, still suffering, still waiting for things to be fixed. See, my friends can only get me so far before I burn them out. My therapists can only get me so far. My medication can get me only so far. My personal motivation and strength can only get me so far. Sometimes people say, what doesn't, make, what doesn't kill you only make you stronger. But I don't think having suicidal thoughts or unable to control my emotions or being paranoid about people has any good in them. And so I think if God really gave me these things so that they would purify me, then that's one evil God. Sometimes people say, Work harder, fight. But I get tired and there are limits that I can't breach. The manager of the exotic Marigold Hotel says, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, then it's not yet the end. 
which is witty and sentimental, but what if it's just suffering all the way to the end? Is that going to be all right? Well, my 20 minutes is up, but I want to finish with one thing. I don't know about you, but I don't have to find an explanation for my suffering. I don't need to find a way to fix it all because I know the Bible tells me that God is with me in it all and that he's in control and knows exactly what's going to happen because he was compelled to walk in the tormenting darkness of loneliness, pain, suffering, betrayal and torture in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh. Grace and wonder may be hard to see and hard to embrace, but not impossible. And I'm 100% certain that God's promises remain true. And the one promise that I continue to hold to is that on the day that when I'm welcomed back to God's eternal fit place, the only thing that I will bring, not works with religion tied with string, no. Why would any of that give me grace when the Son of God died in my place? No. The only thing that I will bring will be my tears. And he will stretch his nail-pierced hands and catch every single one of them and wipe them all away. Thank you.